Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. My guests this week are my friends Katie and Ricky, the co-founders of Altamarfa Winery. Located in Fort Davis at 5,400 feet elevation, the Altamarfa Vineyard occupies a rugged slope in the Texas Davis Mountain AVA. We're going to be using that term a lot today. Um, AVA is American Viticultural Area. It's just a way of like signifying, you know, a place where wine is made, kind of like an appellation in Europe. Eight hours due west of Houston, the Davis Mountains were formed by an eruptive volcanic field 35 million years ago. Surrounded by the Chihuahuan Desert, the resulting landscape is gorgeously barren. It's insane out there. Like, if you've seen the movie There Will Be Blood, most of that movie was actually shot just down the road from Marfa at this ranch called the McGuire Ranch. Anyways, I met Katie and Ricky back in 2017 when they would come into the wine bar that I worked at. Katie cooks in restaurants, and Ricky works in oil and gas. At some point, it came up that they were planting a vineyard just outside Marfa, which struck me as cool but insanely ambitious. These two are self-taught, and they turned their very recent love for wine into a full-on side hustle. Almost every single weekend, at least one of them takes that long trek from Houston to the vineyard to handle irrigation, construction, all that. Last year, they purchased fruit to make a rosé of Tempranillo called Laser Cat. I wanted to reach out and talk to Ricky and Katie about kind of the how and why behind Altamarfa. I mean, it's a huge labor of love. It's a whole lot of work. And I mean, it's a super cool project. They were already in West Texas when I gave them a call. You'll notice that there's uh, some barking in the background. That's Pepe and Lulu, their dogs. Uh, The wind was insanely strong the night that I called them and the wind was coming down the chimney, creating this weird noise that was freaking the dogs out. So apologies in advance for that, um, but I think you'll enjoy the episode. Here we go. Do you guys just want to, like, say your names, introduce yourself, and maybe briefly explain Altamarfa, where it is, um, and then we'll get into some questions? Yeah, yeah that sounds good. Also, good. hopefully our dog is not going to bark too much in the background. Yeah. I think that would be great. Some but, some involvement of the pups. I'm Ricky. Um, and this is Katie. Hi. And um, you guys are at Altamarfa. Yeah, we we are Altamarfa. We are at Altamarfa and we are Altamarfa. Um, we are near marfa texas near fort davis texas uh in far west texas near the border with mexico and we started planting a vineyard in 2017 i think well we started preparing to plant a vineyard i guess in 2016 and then we planted our first vines in 2018 and then we planted more vines in 2019 and now, again, in 2020, we will plant more vines yet again. And you guys are out there right now, aren't you? We are. We are. We just drove here today from Houston. Um, Going to do some vineyard work and isolate ourselves from coronavirus. <laughs> the ultimate quarantine, just getting out, yes. out west. And for people that maybe aren't super familiar with Texas geography, I mean, how would you describe the drive from Houston out to Marfa, both in terms of how long it takes and maybe the change in terrain as you move from kind of like coastal Houston all the way out west. So we left Houston this morning at 9 a.m., which is basically at sea level on the Gulf Coast, and we drove 500 miles west on I-10, basically to get here. Uh, And we arrived at like 6.30 p.m. So... We and how are... would you describe that change? Ooh, it it's actually quite interesting. So you go from Gulf Coast flat, lush, green sea level to the hill country, which is near San Antonio. You drive through San Antonio, past San Antonio, becomes very hilly, lots of limestone rocks, and you gain elevation. And then at some point, you pass through the hill country, and you get into sort of this like 
no man's land where you was no self-service for like two hours and it looks like the bottom of the ocean and there's all these mesas and like just desolation and then you arrive sort of to what i would call far west texas um, and you get to the davis mountains and there's then trees and more varied vegetation and you drive up into the mountains and it sort of looks vaguely like more like southwestern there's like big rock formations and things and then you arrive at the vineyard eventually and we're at 5400 feet elevation here so we're from sea level to slightly higher than denver um i mean we're so we're uh, now about three three to three and a half hours from el paso which mm -hmm. is the western side of Texas. So there's still several hours to go before you even get out of Texas going in the other direction. We can get into this in a little bit, but for the moment at least, what's the temperature right now compared to the temperature it was in Houston? Oh, We're probably at about 50 degrees right now. Really? I don't think it's that cold. I think it's... Well, when we got here at like 6.30, it was, it was probably seven, it was around 70. 70. Degrees. Yeah. But it was... it's much drier, so it feels yeah. cooler and the temperature drop at night is significant is significant uh, you know not like houston where it's like 97 during the day and then 93 for all <laughs> yeah. of the evening yeah. as well even at 3 a.m you, you mentioned that a little bit what sort of diurnal shifts are you guys dealing with like the swing from daytime to evening day to night so <clears throat> so we've now had i recently put up on our website some weather data we have now had a weather station recording at the vineyard for three years so we have 2017 2018 2019 and so 2020 so far all recorded um and i think from what i remember the average diurnal shift throughout the year is almost 40 degrees um but that includes winter where it's more so i you know during the growing season it's often 30 plus degrees that's insane so, that's yeah that's so massive. It, it, it it can you know it it can definitely be almost you know it, a, a typical day during the growing season could be almost 90 during the daytime the high and then the low be around 60 hmm. so it's pretty nice pretty good weather especially considering the weather in elsewhere in texas <laughs> You, you say elsewhere in Texas, it might be helpful um, because there are some pretty massive AVAs here in Texas, and some people may not even know those AVAs at all for those listening outside of Texas that maybe don't come across these wines on a regular basis. But um, do you kind of want to just compare and contrast maybe the high plains, the hill country, and then kind of say what makes your region special? Um, no. <laughs> so I think the main things are, is like the only, basically no one's ever had any wine from Texas who doesn't live in Texas. And most of the people in Texas have never had any wine from Texas. But the two main places that you would have had wine from if you had some are the two that you said. So you have the hill country, which is the area where San Antonio and Austin are located. And... The Hill Country, I think, is the largest AVA in the country. Um, I think it's larger than many states. And it is very hot. It is, you know, 100 degrees, basically, June, July, and August. And it's often, depending, and, and because the Hill Country is so big... You have sort of the eastern side of the Hill Country AVA where it's almost Gulf-like climate where it's, it's pretty humid and it's still high temperatures at night during the summer. And then you have the very western side, which is, you know, several hours driving away from the eastern side where it's higher altitude and it's further away from the Gulf and you get a lot more diurnal shift and it's not as hot. Um, the one wine we've produced and sold so far is from the very western side of um the hill country that's robert clay from robert clay vineyards um so the hill country yeah it's big it's hot um and it has large cities like it has austin and san antonio in it whereas the other abas in texas do not have those population centers um it's called the hill country because it's hilly and it's 
it, it all vaguely looks the same. Um, there's a lot of variation within it, but it sort of would be analogous to, you know, Napa Valley has a lot of variation within it, but it's all in the same valley. It's sort of like the hill country is all in the same big bunch of hills that's hundreds of miles wide, but there's also a lot of variation between it. So um, kind of well, what makes, yeah, what's up? Texas right now still does not really produce enough wine to get more specific in the AVAs. So we right now, like, which I would imagine was similar when California first started producing wine. It's like the AVAs are such large encompassing areas that are often diverse and are enormous. And then only when you start producing enough wines, would it make you want to do more specific to, yeah, to differentiate them. groups. That's a good, really and good I think point. that that's something we've even talked about in where our vineyard currently is, is that it's an area that, there are only other, there are only like three other vineyards. So at this point, it doesn't matter to try and separate out into different AVAs. But at some point, it might matter because the current one that we're in is so large that if you had a lot of vineyards, it would not make sense to include them in the same thing because it differs drastically. Right. But right now, there's not enough. So you kind of get into the thing again of if. If there's not enough production and you're not trying to differentiate that much, then maybe it doesn't matter as much. But Exactly. And what Katie's talking about is the Texas Davis Mountains AVA, um, which is where Altamarfa is and is different than the hill country in that there is no population here at all. I think within the AVA, there's less, definitely less than 10,000 people live in the entire AVA. There are no large cities. I don't even think there's an incorporated town within the <laughs> ABA boundary. So that's where we are. It's you know currently not a, a established wine region, but it does have an ABA. The other major ABA in Texas is the Texas High Plains, which is basically surra- surrounding, you know, in the vicinity of the city of Lubbock, where Texas Tech University is. Hey, it's narrator Chris jumping in. Um, just letting you know that there was a slight pause in the conversation, um, whether it was the Adobe house, the really strong winds that were going that night, or just how far west they were. The call failed. The conversation stopped for a minute, but we were able to pick back up. We'll jump right back in. Yeah. So you were saying that the wind is pretty rough out there right now, that that might be affecting the signal, right? It might be because it, it seemed be. like it was working fine earlier. Yeah. And yeah. then we haven't we haven't moved, so. Yeah. It might be that. All That's good. what's causing the dog to bark as well. Yeah. <laughs> Strong winds. How, how, how fast do you think the winds are out there right now? Uh, I could definitely, you know, 30 or 40 mile per hour That's winds. That's crazy. Are pretty typical. Sounds like pretty rough conditions. Are you dealing, I know, I know for a fact that you're dealing with a lot of frost. That was going to be a leading question, but um, is frost much of an issue out there? It definitely, at our altitude, um, can be in the spring. We, I mean, I even know of, the vineyard down the road from us that planted in around 2011 or 2012, they had a frost in the second, first or second week of May that killed all their vines down to the ground. And that's in May. That's, yeah, that, that was wild. That And that's pretty rare, but it did happen. Whereas like, you know, in, in other places that I'm sure has never, never happened. So, I mean, with all of these, like, really challenging conditions, how did you guys find this plot of land to plant a vineyard in the first place? Uh, um, we came out the first time. This was in January of 2016. And I had emailed back and forth with a realtor and sort of explained what I thought we were looking for, which I had no clue really what that was but what i had in my head was like the smallest piece of land that had a slope and didn't have too many boulders in the way and smallest because then we could afford it um which out here there's basically like lots in town where you could have a house or there's ranches that are a hundred thousand acres (laughs) There's not a lot of property sized in between those two things. There are some, and we were able to find a 25-acre piece. 
um, but it's pretty rare. Um, so we came out and we drove around to some different places and kind of like looked and pretended we had some idea of whether the places were good or not. Um, yeah. And then the actually we drove by this property the first time, the one we ended up buying for where Altamarfa is now, and didn't even get out of the car. And at the time, I think I just didn't didn't think it was right or something. And we then drove around more and then ended up coming back on a subsequent trip and seeing it again. And at that time I got out of the car and kind of hiked up to the top of the hill and saw the view and sort of changed my mind, but cannot be stated too much how little we we knew going into it as far as like what, what to do. But we definitely came away from that first trip looking at places that the area in general was great and and would be like a really cool place to for this project but we're talking you know early 2016 right i mean yes. at that point you guys were 25 26 years old you know been out of college for a handful of years what made you want to plant a vineyard i mean neither we should say that neither of you went to school specifically for no, winemaking Tulane university <laughs> Tulane. yeah I don't uh, believe they have an analogy program there. No, they do not. Definitely not. I think it's it started from drinking wine, enjoying drinking wine, and then that combined with the desire to eventually work for myself rather than you know working in an office job for a large company, which is what I still do as a day job. Um, and... I don't know. I think I read a lot of sort of romanticized autobiographies of people who started vineyards in Napa, and that sounded like it would be fun. What autobiographies did you read? Uh, well, I've, I think I've read almost all of them at this point. I read the, the Kendall Jackson one. I read the Schaefer Vineyards one. Even like... Kermit Lynch that obviously oh, is not yeah. about starting I mean, vineyards, of course, yeah, about that, wine yeah, generally. That, that's maybe the, the... So were you, guys, were you guys drinking wine in college? I mean, you guys met at Tulane, but were you guys drinking wine when you were, you know, juniors and seniors? Yes, and... we drank a lot of <laughs> Franzia. <laughs> Franzia, uh, the uh, Three Oaks variety, <laughs> which was... The things that were three, three for nine dollars. Three for nine dollars. Yeah, we did. And what made you want to drink those rather than like hand grenades or hurricanes or whatever? I else? think during che- cheapest possible. <laughs> or during your reason. senior year when you are transitioning into theoretically getting a job well, afterwards. Yeah, we, and you... we were becoming very sophisticated. Yes. Was, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I know that feeling. (laughs) Drinking sangria felt more sophisticated than drinking, you know... Vodka soda or something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think Ricky started getting actually into wine when he moved to Houston right after college and got a job and luckily got a job that paid you well enough that you could buy more than a $3 bottle of wine. And you also had a roommate who was also interested in wine and and tasting a lot of different wine and also had a job where he could you know y'all could try yeah, some think, interesting shit and when could the, try a the, little bit above like a box. The first bit of elevation happened was when I moved to Houston after college. The first year I was in Houston of then just, you know, the the sort of basic curiosity of like, well, I kind of like the bottle that cost $3. I wonder what the bottle that cost $10 tastes. And then it was like, I wonder what the bottle that costs a little more tastes. And then you you can't help but read more and learn more and start to think about it kind of thing. Yeah. So so I've attended tastings at y'all's house um, over the past couple of years. And the way in which you structure them, you know, I think is very intuitive and is great for tasting things side by side where everyone brings a bottle of wine that fits a certain description, whether that description is Willamette Valley Pinot Noir or a Syrah from somewhere in the world. Is that kind of how you went about learning about wine was kind of just like tastings where everyone brought something different, but all fit within a theme? Like what was kind of your methodology for learning about something new? So 
I would say a lot of the tastings that like you have attended at our house have somewhat been organized by me and have kind of been organized a little bit more recently when I've been trying to learn about wine. Um, because Ricky definitely was the first person that started learning about wine and obviously had the first idea about the vineyard as well. So had a lot more knowledge than I did. And then as we, you know, continued dating and then eventually got married and decided to, I decided to fully become a part of this project. I was like, okay, well, I got to learn some about wine. Um, so some of it was kind of dictated by, I think more me trying to learn. And so I followed some of the, uh, like WSET course recommendations and tasting recommendations. Um, but then based off of some of that, it was like, well, if you want to learn how to taste different wine or you want to learn how a different climate or a different, uh, stylistic in the winery choice would taste or what would oak versus non-oak taste on the same grape or any of those number of things the best way to learn is often to try and taste wines that should theoretically share some similarity so and if that's only just that they're all pinot noir or something then that's fine and it's it's a lot for me it was more like okay well how can i learn and then if other people can help bring in other interesting wines that we wouldn't get to taste. And that's just a benefit to the learning process. So for me, it was like selfishly trying to learn about wine more while also not having to buy six bottles on my own. (laughs) Um, For sure. That makes sense. So, you know, I think some of it was dictated by that. And then luckily we had enough people like, Ricky, who knew about wine and even you and some of our other friends that um, have enough knowledge coming into it that they can pick wine that goes well with some random theme that I decide that maybe isn't even a good theme or something, but um, can fit enough in that we can all kind of learn and it can be fun for everyone at different, you know, knowledge levels. For sure. For sure. Can you think back for both of you? to a bottle of wine or maybe a comparative tasting of a couple of different wines that really illuminated for you kind of what made, you know, wine special or different from one place or another? So I think for me, the, the, the most, the biggest transition point I can point to actually came from a cookbook, which is the pizza camp cookbook. The one by Joe Bedia? Yes, exactly, that one. So there's one page in that book about wine, and it it talks about natural wine. That was the first time I think I'd heard about that term or any concept of what that was. But there's like four or five wines in a picture on that page in that book. And I saw that, and then I went to Houston Wine Merchant, local, you know, wine shop. And I, not knowing any of those wines, asked them, for I, I remember the first one I asked was, oh, do you have any uh, Frank Cornelison wines? And the the guy just kind of laughed and was like, you know, like we only get like six bottles a year and they sell out before they <laughs> even get here. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't, you know, I don't know what that is. And then another one was some guy who'd been dead for five years and his wine is impossible to get, obviously now. And then another one was La Clarine Farm, which is definitely one of my favorite producers now and katie and i went and visited them and helped uh punch down some grapes during harvest and made friends and that kind of thing so that to me was the biggest moment of that that in my mind is when my wine appreciation transitioned from like going to the grocery store and just kind of brute force going bottle by bottle and trying different things and saying, I like this, I don't like this to like being more producer focused and thinking about the farming practices and thinking about natural wine versus more conventional wine and different things. It was, was that page in that cookbook and then trying those wines. You know, it's been fun for me, you know, for, for so long you would be coming into Camerata 
enjoying wine and kind of seeing your tastes and preferences shift a little bit here and there as you tried new and different things was always super, super cool. Oh, yeah, you got to see the full evolution from, like, basically from Rite Aid wine to now. (laughs) That's awesome. That was the other thing is, is thinking back. It, it's a very short period of time from when even that Pizza Camp book came out until now. Well, and I would say that we are fortunate and that we have um, multiple roommates as as well as this, this friends that typically yeah. dine with us on most nights. Um, and especially when I have not been working in like traditional kitchens, I would basically make food every night and we could taste wine. And because there was often five to six of us we, we could open we could open a lot more we wine. could op- open a lot more wine than if it was just two of us yeah. or just one of us um so we've also been fortunate to like mostly over the last couple of years have been able to try a lot of a lot of different wine um more so than potentially a household that was not you know seven people or whatever yeah um <laughs> could try so yeah no it, it's funny you say that uh i think it was maybe last summer a couple summers ago i read uh uh jane mark duplass the duplass brothers uh like book on how they got into filmmaking and how they got into writing and they said one of the most important things for them was having roommates at a formative time so that they could bounce ideas off of one another and that if it had just been the two of them together they probably wouldn't have had such creative output as they do now without having that, you know, foundational period of time when they were surrounded by a lot of other voices and a lot of other people. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely been very formative for us in this process. Even, I mean, so we have now two other people that we live with um, and over the past few years have had three additional people at certain times or just one or different things. But, you know, over the last period of time of like going from Houston out to the vineyard all the time is... We've had roommates to walk our dogs when we're gone. We've had roommates to come help us plant vines. We've had roommates to drink wine with us and eat with us. And it's it's fun now because a lot of our roommates have also kind of bought into some of the wine tasting and trying to learn more. And it is extremely helpful to be able to taste wine with a lot of different people and a lot of people who taste wine differently or have different sensitivities or have different tastes or have different opinions and um you know it's one of the better ways to learn than trying to taste alone and trying to see what other people would think yeah it's very it's super helpful you know yeah so um getting back to the vineyard a little bit um i i wanted to hear you know you guys you know we've talked about how getting into wine is something that happened a little bit later you didn't go to college for it and then over the course of you know four or five years, you went from just discovering wine to deciding you wanted to plant a vineyard. I'm curious, you know, how the pre-existing Texas wine community has responded to you two coming in and doing your thing. So it's kind of interesting because, like, so in certain other regions, I know that, you know, for example, in Napa or in Sonoma County or in Willamette, Willamette Valley, all the producers interact with each other and go to the same places and, you know, bump into each other. Whereas that doesn't, you know, hundreds of miles away from the hill country or the high plains, there's not a lot of like organic interaction. But on the other hand, something I did very early on in the process, even before we had bought a property, is started Instagram and writing a blog to kind of try to like convey the story of what we were trying to do and have people kind of follow along with us if they're interested. That's how we were introduced to most other people in Texas who know about us and our project. So I think it's been interesting when you, when we meet people for the first time, they usually have heard or seen Instagram before we meet, which Mm. is something I only sort of realized recently, but I think I think is sort of an interesting thing because uh, I I'm not sure that just sort of like what what impression that gives I, I'm you know I don't know it's I think that the blog as well as the Instagram are incredibly educational and the fact of the matter is there aren't a lot of producers 
making low intervention wine in Texas. I, I, I don't know. I think it's really, really interesting kind of seeing where you both want to take Texas wine. And it'll be interesting to see whether that's kind of in parallel with the rest of the Texas wine scene, whether, you know, there's any sort of deviation because we're very early in the Texas wine industry and we don't know exactly what direction Texas wine is going. I think it's such a new industry that I think people have also probably not exactly decided where it's going. I mean, something that we found in the person that we bought grapes from this past year that we made wine from is he went full organic the previous year. And he went organic, I think, because he, you know, is just interested in making the best wine that he wants to make out of the small amount that he makes from his grapes. But I think he also potentially went organic because the people that were buying grapes from him kind of dictated that. So I think there's an opportunity for if people who are wanting to make wine in Texas are asking for specific things out of their grape growers, which could be organic or could be biodynamic or could be none of those things, but whoever is asking and and buying the grapes is potentially going to dictate how people are growing the grapes. And, this and, is, this and is, we're so new that... This is Dan McLaughlin at yeah. Robert Clay Vineyards that Katie's talking about. That vineyard, I think, is about 15 yeah. years old. Um, and, and to answer, to sort of give my second part of the, an- your, the answer to your original question is that how have we sort of interacted with the existing wine community in Texas is that the answer is sort of not very much, but in the few instances where we have had a lot of like sort of built real relationships, Dan being the, the, the biggest one is it's been really great. It's been really fun not only i mean we got the opportunity to buy grapes and make our first wine because of him and that's not something we have had even anticipated doing for the next even a few years and we got to do that earlier and that's been really really cool and then also he has he i I think i don't know how long it's been but maybe five years since he bought that vineyard and started doing it i might be wrong about that but i think about that amount of time and just the amount of stuff he's learned and has been able to kind of pass on to us has been super valuable because one one big thing about grape growing that i think people don't really understand is that the way you do it in california or france doesn't it it doesn't really translate all that much a lot of things do translate but you also have to sort of like learn the place that you're in and, and making friends with people here who have done it before has been really good. Well, and I would say like something that is exciting about Texas as well, that, you know, I think maybe motivated Ricky to even like start this project in Texas is that because the region and the industry is so young, you can have an impact on it or you can have kind of like a voice in, where you're taking it, which, you know, it's not like we even know exactly what that means, but the people that we have interacted with, it's like people are very open to suggestions and people are very open to different types of winemaking and people are very excited of anyone that's coming into the industry um, because it's so new. So it's, it's exciting to be part of something that could possibly be deciding what you want your wine to look like or be deciding grapes that you think are going to be known in Texas or whatever it is, but it's, it's like open in a lot of those senses that if you went in a more established reason region would not necessarily be the case. Yeah, that's super true. You can kind of just do whatever you want because everything everyone has done so far has not really stuck. There's been no, (laughs) you know, it's, it's not like there's no established, thing that Texas wine is known for so you 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 can't be seen as going against that really if if well they're... and it's like the the land and the operating costs are also a lot lower than you can mess around a lot more or you can plant a lot of different weird varieties or you can you oh, can figure well, out more because you're not paying well, so much for the land that you need to plant something that you know is going to be successful and you know is going to be perfect and you know is going to sell well right or you can just do this at all whereas anywhere yeah. else in the country you could uh, there would be zero chance of us being able to 
buy land and plant a vineyard. There's yeah. absolutely no chance. Mm. You know, but then we can like, do dumb stuff of plant like 25 vines of some variety just to see if it works. Yeah. Which you wouldn't do if you were paying a million dollars per acre or something, yeah. you know. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is, yeah, <laughs> so, if, if you went and somehow got investors to give you millions of dollars to do uh, this yeah, in California, it's like, it would be like plant the no, one that you yeah, can sell be, for $90 no a bottle. for experimentation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let's talk about some of those varieties that you guys did plant because you, you you planted a fair bit of Cabernet Sauvignon, but you have a lot of really interesting varieties planted as well. It'd be really cool to hear which of those varieties you think is going to take off or might surprise you, kind of what yeah, your methodology definitely. was so for deciding what to plant. Between 2018 and 2019, I think almost 30 different varieties, most of which were in lots of 25 vines of each one. Um, and most of it was centered around looking for a few things, which was basically late, late bud break, if possible, uh, sort of loose grape clusters because our rainy season is the summer. So if we had it raining on the fruit, we wanted sort of clusters to be able to dry out and drain and not just trap moisture and rot immediately. Um, and then just sort of general hardiness and like warm climate adaptability. Um, and so that sort of, I think the first thing anyone would do, and, and I, I did the same thing, is thought about, well, what other regions in the world that grow grapes are most similar to where we are? And the answer is really none. <laughs> which I've, I've realized more and more, I think at first you're like, oh, Argentina is the same because it is high altitude. And then you realize that it's really not similar at all. And then you think like, oh, Sicily is like pretty far south in Europe and there's a volcano there and there's volcanic soil like we have. And then you realize it's, you know, we're hundreds and hundreds of miles more south than that. And it's really not that similar for a lot of other reasons. So about three weeks after that phone conversation, I drove west to help Ricky and Katie plant vines at Alta Marfa. I was really excited because while I have visited wineries at every stage of production from harvest to bottling, I've never actually helped with the planting of new vines. To clarify, each vine is a one-year-old grafted plant that was grown in the field nursery during the previous growing season. Shipped from the Novavine Nursery via FedEx, the 1,000 vines needed to be hand-planted in hand-dug holes. We were so busy for most of the trip that I only managed to get in one quick recording before driving back. For better or worse, I taped it outdoors so you can hear the West Texas wind and birds in the background. And if you're jonesing really hard in your quarantine for some nature, I recommend you just like drown out the sound of my voice and listen to the wind chimes. We are sitting down with Katie and Ricky of Altamarfa, and we just took care of some planting. Um, we planted um, a bunch of different varieties. We planted Claret Blanche, Tanat, Carignan, Cabernet, Semillon. Was there another grape variety that we planted? Grenache Blanc, yeah. Tanat. Yeah. I think that's all we did so far. Um, About 500 vines so far. 500 of 1,000 total, right? Yeah, exactly. And to put that in perspective, how many were planted last year? Each previous year, we did about 6,000 each year. 6,000 each year. Exactly. So why are we only doing 1,000 this year? So the 1,000 was meant to sort of be replacements for vines that had not survived either of the past two years. Um, whereas last year, finally, most did survive, so we don't have so many replacements. Okay. Um, and why would a vine not survive in the vineyard? Could be lots of reasons. I th I think most of the reasons were uh, out here were water related, lack of water. Hmm. Um, but there are more comical reasons, like someone planted a vine upside down one time, or you know, no one puts dirt back. Did in the 420 hole. coincide with planting last year too? I think it yes. did. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, well, that explains the upside down vine. Maybe. Yeah. Um, cool. So, um, yeah, let's recap a little bit of like what we did for planting. So we went out into the vineyard, we pulled up after an eight hour drive. Um, y'all were already out there and it's kind of a three stage process, right? First, you know, dig the hole, remove any large rocks, right? 
And then you have to add a couple of things to that hole before you put the vine in, right? Right. And that was new this year, again, because we think lack of water or water stress is kind of the biggest problem for our baby vines is this year we decided to instead of just putting the dirt from the hole back in the hole which a lot of times is just gravel and there barely is any dirt um this year we put a little cup of like bentonite clay to try to hold moisture near the roots and then we also put some like a big handful of compost Hmm. um and then put the dirt back on and then in some of the holes where we had just no dirt and just only rocks we had to bring dirt from pile we had somewhere else also hmm. what gave you the idea for bentonite clay katie was just asking me this earlier um it's sort of made up i think i talked to a guy in napa about it at a champagne drinking picnic and he was doing something with some kind of clay but i yeah. don't really know what the details were yeah. so i'm sort of guessing that something like this is what he was doing mm-hmm. um but there are other similar practices in agriculture. Like there's a product made by like Miracle Grow that's yeah. like water crystal chemical things that perform the same function. They're supposed to like hold water and then release it kind of to the yeah. roots as it's needed. Fair but, yeah, it sounds like water stress is kind of the main concern out here more than anything else, right? I mean, it, it's the it's the main concern that's present all the time. Yep. Whereas there's other big concerns like spring frost, I think is probably a really big one. And then hail is a definitely one too. Definitely. So we were talking about the grape varieties that we planted and you were saying earlier when we were out there in the vineyard, you were mentioning that for you, you think some of the varieties that will hold up the best out there are uh, Negro Amaro, or did you say Tanat? That was um, also one. Yeah. So yeah. Negro Amaro, Tanat, Suzao. Uh, maybe Cab also, mm-hmm. Carignan, basically all hardy, late budding varieties is seeming to be the better things. Um, but I think it'll be another few years before we really see what is doing well and what's not. And logistically, I mean, we were planting, you know, in packages of 25, it was like 25 to a bundle yep. that got shipped to you from Nova Vine, yeah. right? And we were kind of planting them interspersed. I mean, predominantly in the lower part of the vineyard, at lower elevation where it was a little more flat and a little less rocky, yeah. there was a fair bit of Cabernet and Carignan. Yeah. But then when we went further up the hill where it was rockier, like more of a slope, uh, we were planting a lot more white varieties like Grenache Blanc, Semillon. Um, logistically, what was kind of the reasoning behind that? Well, I think some of it is that we knew cab is late bud breaking. Yeah. And so in the lower area, you would have like more frost pressure. Mm-hmm. And in the upper area, theoretically, if it's on a slope, you wouldn't have it as much. So the ones that we wanted to test went up in that area. Yeah. And then another less logistical part of it was just there's fewer holes up in the other yeah. areas. So we just put the random stuff up there. Yeah, exactly. But that seemed to be the biggest challenge of the past several days was dealing with the number of rocks that were in that upper area. Yeah. I mean, I think most people would see the bottom part and say it was really rocky. And then you see the top upper part of the vineyard and it's only rocks and there's barely any dirt. Yeah. yeah. So previously, like, what you know, when you were out here planting this time, we obviously went through the step of basically digging holes with like a shovel or a claw and then once that was kind of nice, then putting in the compost and the clay, then planting, maybe adding some dirt. But previously, before planting year one, we tried to dig holes with an auger on like a bobcat or is that yeah, what it's called? Bobcat, yeah. And we broke, I think, three carbide tipped augers oh, wow. trying to just go in the lower area, which and this is a like less rocky one, area. In one day we did that. <laughs> yeah. So and then we rented another piece of equipment that was like i can't i don't know what it's called but like an excavator an excavator with like a scooping handle Mm -hmm. and so we had to scoop out the rest of the one so like the upper area Mm -hmm. especially we were just like after we'd broken three augers Mm -hmm. used the carbide scooper to scoop um and that was able to help with like some big rocks but it definitely was like you know the the planting now seems supremely rocky and it was yeah. so much worse the first yeah, year like trying year to even better. just prep the ground yeah. to 
allow some amount of fine. Well, it seems like there's a lot of trial and error and just learning from what happened the year before. Tons. Yes. Um, but there's a certain stress related to this trial and error to do something for one year, like see it fail or in the moment dealing with failure and then growing from that, right? Um, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely stressful going into a situation like the first year where we had 6,000 vines coming and we were not prepared enough at all and weren't finished with our homemade irrigation system and we were still digging holes, still digging holes because the equipment kept breaking and the vines were arriving and the vines got lost during shipment and all this stuff happened and that's very stressful, but I, I do sort of think that those things always happen when you're doing stuff like this. Unless you've done it before, those things are going to happen to you. Yeah. And once you've done it many times, they still happen to you, just less. Hmm. So I don't think any, you know, going to winemaking school can in any way help you deal with how to organize logistics of planting a vineyard in the middle of nowhere for the first time. You know, I, th I think mm -hmm. you know a lot of background knowledge that might help you do it a little better, but you would still be extremely stressed. And you know, I mean, I think it would help you probably be better prepared before you started yes. the thing. But it doesn't necessarily help you troubleshoot during for your specific exactly problems. It, but like for us too, the first year, um, basically ninety percent of our vines died, and so we spent like three months being like okay, we suck, we yeah, failed, yeah. <laughs> what did we do? Yeah. But the benefit, and then, you know, it ended up being that the nursery shipped us dead vines and then refunded it entirely for the pre next year. So you didn't find that out nice. until... No, we had it a took us, several It took months us three of, months, but you know, the benefit <laughs> of that was for three months, we thought through, like, every single thing that we possibly did do wrong, mm -hmm. which was also a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, you know... The, like, only good part about failing is that if it had just gone perfectly and 95% had survived... We would have learned very little. Well, and we never would have thought, okay, maybe we do need to put compost. Okay, maybe we do need to put mm -hmm. this clay. Maybe we do need to focus on how the irrigation is spaced out. Maybe we do need to focus on how much dirt. Like, you don't you don't know any of that until you fail and then spend three months thinking that you're a failure and trying to not fail the next time. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know. A lot of time to ruminate on your thoughts. Um yeah. Something that I, I don't know if it'll translate in tape, but just how how vast the expanse is out here in West Texas. I mean, where we're sitting here, I'm looking out in the distance and I can see the Marfa Observatory, right? Is that what it's called? McDonald Observatory. Yeah. McDonald Observatory. And that's what, 40, 50 miles away? Yeah, probably. probably I mean, 20 or 30, but yeah. And 30. as the crow flies looking at that those observatory towers, I don't see a single building between here and there. Um, there's probably two to three roads in that distance. To get to the vineyard from where we are right now, it's, what, a 17-mile drive? Yeah. Um, but as the crow flies, maybe closer it's to like 10 seven. miles, seven yeah. miles. I mean, it is so vast, and it, I would imagine, feels very easy. It's very easy to feel alone out here. Um, and given all of the trial and error and all the stresses that you guys talk about, how do you manage that kind of, like, external and internal pressure that you're putting on yourselves? I think going back and forth a lot from Houston to here, some part of, part of the time feeling very alone because you do almost always feel very alone here. Yeah. But sometimes that's exactly what you want coming from Houston, and then the other half of the time, it just feels really lonely and not well, great. <laughs> what, I mean, what do you do in those moments? Do you guys? How do you kind of like meditate on things you've done in a space? This kind of Desolate. That's a good question. I don't Maybe know. We need to do more meditation. Still, yeah, still <laughs> trying to figure that out. I think one thing I've done the the sort of first few months of this year, I was here a lot by myself, and would definitely have certain days when you just feel like I was making no progress, or I did something wrong and would have to redo it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I would just sort of take a break and walk up the hill on, you know, above the vineyard and just sit there and sort of look around at nature and mm -hmm. realize that all of this is somewhat silly and not that serious. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty great just to be here. So I think that's, that's sort of what I try to do anyway. 
Um, you guys got married less than a year ago, like six months ago. Like almost exactly eleven a year months. Ago. Eleven yeah. months. Um, yeah. When did May eighteenth? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> May eighteenth. Yeah. So, so almost eleven months. Eleven exactly. months ago. I think I was counting from your honeymoon. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another important thing. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I imagine that going into a project like this with a business partner is very different than going into it with your life partner, right? I mean, this is you guys have been together for a very long time. I mean, how does your work dynamic? affect the way in which you you guys operate or do you see it playing a role at all in terms know, of bouncing ideas never off had of any one business another? partner so i don't know what that would be like i think that which i think you could say is similar to in our relationship mm-hmm. but i think for the vineyard purpose i think we have extremely different skill sets mm-hmm. so there's a lot of things that i could not do like all I generally don't understand a lot of the science or any of the like technical things that go into the vineyard stuff one just because I like am not a scientist person mm-hmm. um but also just because I haven't done as much like research or learning as Ricky has um so he's good at that but then I think I'm better at some of the maybe like larger picture or synthesizing how things are going to work or come together mm-hmm. um or even just like organizing a bunch of volunteers yeah. that have helped us plant. Definitely. So I think that like I don't know if we like intended to originally do this project together. It more was like Ricky intending to do it alone and then I guess I decided to help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but I think again there's I think each of us can like bring different things to it that I think mm-hmm. are can make it like ultimately function better than if it just was one person. Oh, definitely. Um, I think we cut, co- yeah, like cover each other's blind spots very well. And it's been cool for me to see that because the, I've seen you guys in a totally different context than as I knew you before in Houston. Right. Cause in Houston, it was always like, let's go over to your house, drink wine. Yeah. You know, Katie would cook. Um, but seeing the way in which you both kind of managed me and the other volunteers the past several days. I think that's been another thing with when, you know, with all the volunteers that have been kind enough to help us plant is a lot of time when, you know, people learn differently and need things to be explained to them differently. So I could explain something to someone and they would have no idea what I'm talking about. And then Katie could explain the same task and then it would make sense or vice versa. And I think that has been helpful too. Yo, so I love everybody that I interview for this podcast, but Ricky and Katie went above and beyond. They hosted me at their house in Fort Davis. They let me help them with planting. They sat down for two separate interviews, so really big thank you to the two of them. Um, If you don't already follow Altamarf on Instagram, you absolutely should. You'll get some high-quality viticulture shots. Um, some really amazing works being done out there. So whether you want to look at sunsets or scorpions or centipedes, you can find it on their Instagram page. It's lit. And you can follow us on Instagram at By the Glass Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can subscribe to By the Glass wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to smash that five-star review button. It goes a long way to helping You can subscribe to Buy the Glass Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Google, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, the interwebs, wherever you get your podcasts, we will have it there for you. Again, this is Chris Paldoin. Thank you for listening. Keep drinking good booze, keep washing your hands, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode.